the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you a panel event discussing the results of the Australian government's community-based climate change action grants in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Crawford School of the Australian National University. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes. I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre, and uh, we're hosting uh, today's uh, event. Uh, it's just great to see so many people here, uh, especially at a time when uh, you know, ANU is heading off for the long uh, summer slumber. Uh, great to see such interest in uh, today's seminar. Uh, let's begin, uh, as we always do, by acknowledging the first Australians, uh, the traditional owners on whose land we're meeting, and by paying our respects uh, to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, I'm uh, actually not going to chair uh, the event today. I'm just here to welcome you. Uh, I'm afraid I have to leave a little bit early. We've got a lot of uh, interviews this week, so I'm going to leave about 1.30. Uh, but in any case, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr Matt Dornan, is much better qualified than me to chair because he actually works a lot on climate change funding issues and on the Pacific. Uh, so I thought it would be great to uh, have him to chair. And so without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Matt, to uh, run today's event. Well, thank you, Stephen, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's great to see so many people here. Uh, we've got a fairly packed program, as you will have seen. So as chair, I'm going to be very strict with timing. Um, we have four speakers. They will each present for 10 minutes, uh, and I'll be giving them uh, a cue when they have two minutes left. Um, the speakers, of course, are talking about the Australian Community-Based Climate Change Action Grants, a $34 million program uh, through which Australian and international NGOs worked with local partners to build resilience to climate change uh, and address development issues at the local level. Um, I should also flag, we will first be hearing from uh, two distinguished guests who will be providing some introductory uh, remarks. Um, the Honourable Matt Thistlewaite, uh, Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Foreign Affairs uh, and for Immigration, uh, and Jeff Tooth, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Sustainability and Climate Change Branch at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So um, Jeff will uh, be speaking first. Um, he was previously Australia's uh, High Commissioner to Kenya, Rwanda, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, uh, ambassador to Burundi, Somalia and South Sudan and Australia's permanent representative to the UN Environment Programme and other UN agencies based in East Africa. And previous to that, he had a, a distinguished um, diplomatic career in a number of other regions. So please join me in welcoming Jeff, Jeff Tooth. Thank you. <clears throat> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Can I particularly acknowledge the presence of um, the Honourable Matt Thistlethwaite and uh, the Deputy Head of Mission from the PNG High Commission and another one talks from the PNG High Commission. Thank you for coming today. As the Head of the Area in Foreign Affairs that manages the Australian Community-Based Climate Change Action Grants, I am quite delighted to provide some introductory remarks on behalf of our Minister for the Minister for International Development of the Pacific, Stephen Chobo who asked that I pass on his sincere regrets for not being able to attend today. Can I also start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on today and pay my respects to their elders, past and present? I also wish to thank the Development Policy Centre, the ANU, CARE, Live and Learn, Oxfam, PLAN and Save the Children for presenting this event today. It is an excellent opportunity to collectively celebrate and learn from the community-based action climate change action grants program. 
and learn we must, because the challenges posed by climate change, particularly for the most vulnerable developing nations, are only going to increase over coming years. Ladies and gentlemen, 2015 has been a year where the world has focused both on climate change and our thinking about international development and the vital overlap between the two. We've seen the outcomes of the Addis Ababa Financing for Development Conference, the recently announced Sustainable Development Goals, and we are now less than two weeks away from the world coming together for the Paris Climate Conference. There can be no more pertinent time to discussing adaptation and building resilience to climate change at the community level. In Australia, places a very high priority on helping vulnerable countries meet the challenge of climate change. In the lead-up to Paris, Australia has been working closely with our neighbouring countries to secure a strong and effective global climate agreement. The government sees Paris as a crucial next step in building action towards the below two-degree goal, but we certainly do not see it as the end of the road. The agreement must build a framework for further action. The tragic events of the weekend have done nothing to undermine France's resolve to make Paris a landmark event for climate change action. And we hope and expect it will only more strongly motivate the international community to work together to produce a high-quality, ambitious and durable agreement. And Australia certainly will be doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, the countries in the Pacific and Southeast Asia are among the most vulnerable to disasters and the impacts of climate change. For many, it is an existential threat. The community-based climate change action grants were developed to support community-based adaptation and mitigation activities in developing countries and to help communities in the Asia-Pacific manage the impacts of climate change. I've been very pleased to see the results of these programs across the region. Emily from my branch, who is with us today, attended some of the evaluation field visits with Kate Duggan in order to see firsthand the achievements of these programs and witnessed the programs in action. She saw that they were having a real impact on the lives of recipients, both in the present and for their capacity to deal with future, the future impacts. The program, of course, has not been without its challenges. Tragically, a number of the recipient countries have been seriously impacted by natural disasters. There's been flooding in Oniara, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, and Cyclones Lucy and Pam in Vanuatu. Despite this, there have been many achievements, and the range of which have to be applauded. For example, in Papua New Guinea, local and remote communities now understand why the weather and seasons have changed. They understand better climate change risks and the effects on their subsistence livelihoods. Some communities have applied skills to increase their resilience and adapt to their changing way of life. In Manus province, which we saw up on the screen just as we came in, Coastal communities have introduced a variety of new early maturing and drought-resistant crops. The communities have quickly adapted and farmed these crops for food security and increased income. Communities have also been trained in building sea stone walls to reduce the impacts of sea level rises or high tides. Following this training, communities have taken action to build their own walls and plan for their future. In Timor-Leste, we've seen promotion of climate-resilient livelihoods in addition to enhance access to safe drinking water improved sanitation and a reduction in landslide risk and erosion. In the Philippines and in Vietnam, a child-centred community-based approach to climate change adaptation has helped communities link existing knowledge with innovative strategies to address current vulnerability and increased resilience. Across the program, we have seen inclusive participation in project activities. As a result, women, men, girls and boys and their communities 
now have an increased understanding and knowledge of climate change and weather-related disasters and the adaptive behaviour required to increase resilience. I could provide many more examples of the outcomes under this program. However, in the interests of time, I'll stop there, particularly as you're going to be hearing from experts soon. I'm looking forward to hearing more from the panel. I'm sure we'll hear more program highlights today along with lessons learned. And we must, of course, take these lessons on board, both where we have succeeded and where we could have done better. And we must take those and use them in planning for future climate change programs. Let me finish by thanking Kate Duggan in particular for her hard work in preparing the final evaluation for this program and all Emily and all the other DFAT staff who have been involved in this in oversight roles. I look forward to reviewing the final evaluation in detail and together with the agencies, the agencies represented here and many others, building on our experiences to advance our response to the many challenges posed by climate change. Thank you. Uh, perfect. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, so now we'll, we're fortunate to hear from the Honourable Matt Thistlewhite, the Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Foreign Affairs, uh, Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Immigration, uh, and of course, uh, formerly the Parliamentary Secretary for Pacific Island Affairs under the previous uh, government, a position that's very relevant to today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Can I acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to Elders past and present? I also acknowledge Jeff and thank you for your presentation. Um, and Sarkis uh, Tameo, it's wonderful to have Sarkis here. I was just having a very interesting discussion with Sarkis before we began today about the effects of El Nino on communities in the highlands of um, Papua New Guinea. And I encourage people to, to have a discussion um, with someone like Sarkis who whose nation is feeling the effects firsthand of, of climate change. Also, I'd like to thank Stephen and the Crawford School for putting on this event today. I'm really, really interested in reading the evaluation report um, of this very important project. When Labor established this project in 2010, our aim was to look at how we could finance and build micro or community-based programs that built resilience to climate change and promoted adaptation amongst communities and improved information about adaptation within communities, particularly throughout the, the Pacific. Many of the, the global funds, the, the Green Climate Fund and the Commonwealth Fund, concentrate on those big scale projects. And there's not, I believe, there's not enough concentration on what we can be doing on the ground to change behaviours and to change um, processes and policies of governments regarding climate change adaptation. So we're very keen to read the evaluation report and also to hear some of the anecdotal evidence that will come out of the presentations today. Um, I've spent the last two or three years meeting with leaders and high commissioners and ambassadors from the Pacific. And despite the challenges of development in the Pacific, the number one issue when you ask a Pacific leader on what the challenges facing their nation is, is always climate change. It's always climate change. When Australians talk about climate change, we think of something that will affect us in 20 or 30 years. In the Pacific, climate change is a present danger and it's affecting lives. Wells that have supplied water to communities for hundreds of years becoming salinised. Staple crops no longer being able to be grown to sustain communities. Um, 
inundation from sea level rise, not only for communities but for infrastructure. Uh, these are all real threats that are occurring as we speak uh, in the Pacific. And I'm not sure that the message has got through uh, to the average Australian, and I'm certainly not sure that the message has got through to this Liberal government about just how urgent climate change is in the Pacific. The cuts that we've made in programs aimed at reducing carbon emissions in Australia, quite frankly, I think are an international embarrassment. We're probably one of the only nation, developed nations in the world that's gone backwards when it comes to tackling climate change. So removing a price on carbon, an economy-wide mechanism to reduce emissions in our economy, removing that legal cap on emissions that we could all work to as an economy uh, over time, has seen, once again, emissions from coal-fired power stations rise in Australia. After the carbon price was put in place, they were falling and they've begun to rise again. And they're the biggest generator of emissions in our economy. And the government's own report from the Department of Environment, Greg Hunt's own department, indicates that those emissions will continue to rise. Uh, in 2010, emissions were 480 million tonnes. In 2020, they're projected to rise to 656 million tonnes from the energy sector in Australia. We, we've got a government that's actively trying to get rid of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. And the Abbott government changed the mandate, the investment mandate, for those important bodies away from investment in wind and solar energy into other projects. We've cut the renewable energy target. I was in Spain just as Australia was about to cut the renewable energy target and I'm meeting with these big Spanish investors, global investors in renewable energy, and they're saying to me, so, so let me get this straight. Your government actually is discouraging more investment in renewable energy, is that right? And I'm saying, yes, unfortunately, that is the case. It's unbeknown and really embarrassing on the international stage when you have to talk about those sort of policies, but that's what uh, the current government has been doing. Uh, now, when Malcolm Turnbull was elected as the Prime Minister, I think there was a bit of renewed hope that we finally would get some action from the Liberal Party on climate change. Unfortunately, that hope has been short-lived because the current government are keeping nearly all of the policies of the Abbott government when it comes to climate change. And that's a great shame because in the lead-up to Paris, you've had leaders of Pacific nations become quite vocal about the urgency of climate change and the effects that it's having on their nations and communities. And really, they were looking for greater leadership from Australia on this issue. There's no doubt about that. That's why you've had Anote Tong. That's why you've had um, Tony De Bruyne, uh, Frank Bainimarama, these sort of people actively criticising Australia in international forums, saying things like we're leading the coalition of the selfish. Now, for the nation that is the lead economy in the Pacific, in our neighbourhood, that generates the most emissions per head of population within that region, to take a step away from all the action that we were taking on climate change uh, is simply not good enough. So we need to be doing more. The 26 to 28% cuts that we're taking as an ambition to Paris by 2030. I'm not an expert on these sort of things, but the climate scientists that I speak to, and I'm in regular contact 
with climate scientists at the University of New South Wales in my electorate. I held a forum with a couple of them on the weekend, and they're saying that those cuts don't keep Australia within that two-degree warming scenario. So the international pledge of trying to limit climate change to two degrees, if Australia goes with 26 to 28%, we don't meet that commitment. And for nations like Kiribati and Tuvalu, that's, that's game over. Over the next 50 years, that's game over for them. That's why you've seen nations like Kiribati begin to purchase land in Fiji, because those governments know that over time, if we don't reverse the trend in what's occurring, they're going to have to substantially move those nations. One of those climate scientists that I just mentioned earlier, uh, Katrin Meisner, who works at the University of New South Wales, perfectly described climate change on the weekend. She said, it's like putting your hand in a, a pot of boiling water and then turning off the heat. Well, the heat doesn't go away immediately. If you turn the heat off, it'll take many, many minutes for that pot of boiling water to cool down. It's the same with climate change. We can turn off the emissions tomorrow, but it doesn't mean that the world's going to cool overnight. It's going to take many, many years to change that trend. And for many of those Pacific nations, it may be too late. It may be too late. And that's why you've had this urgency and this greater degree of stronger language when it comes to the approach to climate change. When, when Labor was in government, we did try and focus on some of those practical on-the-ground programs um, and the community-based climate change action grants were a very important part of that. The $34 million that was pledged since 2010 was aimed at building resi resilience uh, to climate change and to promote development. And I want to thank CARE, Oxfam, uh, PLAN and Save and Live and Learn for the work that you've done in rolling out that work in local communities throughout the Asia-Pacific. And as I said, uh, Labor, particularly my colleague Tanya Plibersek and I are very, very keen to read the evaluation report of that. And we're doing quite a bit of work at the moment in terms of policy development from Labor's perspective on how we can help on practical programs in the Pacific. And uh, I'm sure that that's something that we will address in the new year in the lead up to the election. So from my perspective, uh, thank you for the work that each and every one of you have been doing. Uh, it's really, really important. And you know as well as I do that these programs do make a difference in communities throughout the Pacific in particular, but the wider Asia-Pacific region. Um, Labor's already made some commitments in respect of our approach to international development and overseas aid. Uh, at the ACFID conference this year, Tanya Plibersek pledged an additional $30 million per year to NGOs in developing nations, particularly around child health, water and sanitation and education, but also $10 million to work with NGOs on the ground at improving aid effectiveness. And the process that we're undertaking here today and your feedback is important in that aid effectiveness debate. So thank you once again. Uh, I look forward to working with you uh, over the coming years and in the lead up to the next election to ensure that this issue of Australia's response to climate change and our responsibility to take action in our region is at the forefront of people's minds uh, when they come to vote at the next election. Thanks very much. All right, thank you very much. Um, we're now going to hear from our four experts. Um, 
people who have uh, either worked on or managed the Australian Community-Based Climate Change Action Grants Program or who have evaluated it in the case of our first speaker, Kate Duggan. Um, so uh, Kate Duggan is the director of the uh, Griffin Natural Resource Management. Um, she has uh, 25 years of experience in natural resource management um, and uh, a similar uh, period of experience working on international development. So please join me in welcoming Kate. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you to the ANU and Crawford School for this opportunity. Uh, we've been looking for an opportunity like this to start the conversation around the outcomes of the evaluation, and this is a very, very, very good beginning to that process. Um, I, I'd also like to thank the partners in the, in the program, the NGOs and their local partners who've been really forthcoming with information that has informed our thinking and enabled us to um, look across the program in a very collaborative way and come up with some hopefully good ideas about how to go forward. Um, perhaps just a few little opening remarks about where this program fits in, in the bigger global picture of what the world's doing about climate change in the countries where this program is centred. Um, we've seen a lot of activity, I guess, post um, the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties in particular, uh, building the science, um, uh, helping to build the policy environment around climate change and the skills and capacities at national levels in a lot of the partner countries where we work in this region of Asia and Pacific. Um, you'd have to say that the work on the ground, while that's been ramping up, has been the minor part of all of that work and in a lot of ways it's the area where we really need to concentrate in the future to get the skills and experience that, that people need to actually adapt and make a difference on the ground. Um, I've just got a very brief little presentation here and we'll have some opportunities later on to, to talk. Um, I also, I guess, want to thank DFAT for, um, for providing uh, Emily Pugin on this evaluation because it's been wonderful to have her input and connection back into the bigger program. So... Um, so the, CB, the CBCCAG program uh, has been running for a few years. The evaluation was conducted this year in 2015. So it's an end of program evaluation as most of the projects had finished or um, were coming to a close. Uh, it looked at the program level. So while we talked to people about progress towards objectives that, that they set in their individual projects, it was really trying to look at aggregating that up and looking at the, the picture across the whole program. Um, we're only finalising that reporting now. We weren't working towards this timetable originally, but we are now because this was too good an opportunity to miss. Um, but please uh, bear in mind that we're just dealing with draft findings at the moment. Oh, how do we drive this thing? Sorry. Thanks. Pardon? Great. Okay. So the evaluation was, was carried out to um, look at whether the intended objectives of the program had been had been met, both at a program level and for individual projects. But it was also to draw out key lessons 
that could inform future programming. And without making any promises, I guess there was an implicit implication there that there could possibly be some ongoing work done in this area um, through the aid program. Uh, looking at the program objectives overall, um, it was really about the, the ability of communities um, to build their capacity and resilience to the impacts of climate change. Um, the communities and governments were working together to support adaptation planning and strategies in their, in their particular areas. Um, and that the community-based strategies that were developed would have some wider application. There were nine projects. Um, I'm, I think you, you're probably all familiar with them, so I won't go into them in great detail. But it, it crossed a, a big, big geographic spread and um, impacted on a very large number of people um, over the Asia-Pacific region. Generally, and this is just a very summary little my take on, on the theory of change, I guess, behind, behind the program. Uh, although there were lots of individual differences and unique um, ways that things were done within individual projects. This is kind of the general sort of sphere of thinking that people designed the projects on and worked along. So it began really with, um, with building knowledge and capacities in communities. This is a, this is a really um, uh, well-invested um, and employed theory of change for community-based adaptation. So you begin by building knowledge, you start to facilitate particip participatory planning within communities to take that knowledge on board. Um, you look at testing out options that are identified with people on the ground and you partner with local governments and other external, um, external community organisations so that you can access, hopefully, some resources into the future. And you develop wider networks so the learning from all of this can be scaled out into some sort of bigger framework. Um, the evaluation will look and has looked fairly carefully at the, I guess, the efficacy of this theory of change it's very linear, as you can see. That's not really the way that change happens. But we've learned a lot that can help to inform the, the global kind of thinking around this. And I think that in itself was a really important outcome. Um, there was substantial progress towards project level and program level objectives um, in, all, in all cases and across the program. Um, there's evidence of increased resilience to the impacts of climate change and there are measurable short-term benefits uh, to communities, and these are documented and, and uh, will be documented in some detail. Um, some were mentioned earlier in specifics, and uh, there are numerous ones of those. Um, the important thing to remember is that while we can measure these changes and we can sort of project into the future about how that may go without ex the, the support of particular projects, we have to be really cognisant of the, the fact that this is a longer-term process, and I think... Uh, in the report, I describe it as a snapshot in time in the, the broader community development programs of communities and of the people who are helping them. It's very important to keep going because we've started to generate um, change, uh, but that change doesn't happen in three years, it doesn't happen in six years, but it's really important to see this as part of an ongoing process. And we say quite a lot about how that can be, that can be sort of integrated into a longer term. Um, Importantly, as I mentioned earlier, there's, a, there's been a collective effort in building the evidence base or a base around community-based adaptation across a huge geographic reach. The consortiums, the number of NGOs, the number of local partners have enabled this program to, to really have a, a, a very large geographic reach and also a very big range of cultural 
and environmental and geographic settings and context. Um, if you take a look on the table outside, you'll see that there's a whole range of stuff that's been produced. We've come across uh, volumes and volumes of material. Out there, you'll see that, 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 that it's, it's all separate. It's housed in different organisations. It really needs to be pulled together um, to help inform this global uh, discourse around what community-based adaptation is and what can be achieved through uh, the sort of models that have been employed and maybe even get out some... Um, you know, coherent models out of this process that can be used to inform um, community-based adaptation elsewhere. I'm sure that potential is there, but it isn't collated at the moment. So don't start again. There's been a lot that's been achieved. We need to actually get that into, into the, the formal um, areas where people can access it. Uh, and some of that's been done. I don't want to diminish that, but we haven't done enough of that yet. The approach of bringing climate change through development, community development lens um, was appropriate and largely successful. There are lots of different ways of bringing community, bringing climate change into communities. Um, this, is, this is one of the, the more successful approaches because it actually um, it, it acknowledges that communities are already doing their own development in various ways. They're linked to a whole lot of other partners that bringing climate change information in and bringing skills and expertise in and starting uh, that, that, that process of looking at those risks simply informs that whole development process much, much better. And um, if it is disconnected from, from that, that normal, um, those normal livelihood issues, then it doesn't, doesn't actually... It takes, it, it, it doesn't, it's not very successful. But there is a lot more need for specialist expertise in what I could see across the program and what colleagues could see um, because we're at very, very early days and it's quite difficult for communities to take on board this knowledge um, the way that it's, that it's currently presented and make it make sense in their lives because of a lot of it's technical, a lot of it's at a very basic level. Um, so the risk assessments that were enabled through these, these projects have helped to identify options that can be tested out on the ground. We need longer to fully develop that experience um, to really get to, the, to, to options that are going to make a difference, both in the short term and, the, and in the long run. Uh, we need to go deeper. Um, it's, it's easy enough to identify options that, that kind of provide some short-term benefits or look fairly good in terms of environmental management or the green agenda, but it's really, really important to make sure that they're um, highly relevant and contextual um, to, be, to be sustainable and to have the benefits. Okay. They must be connected. All of the planning must be connected with uh, local community development processes. If they're not, um, they won't be effective. It's a very difficult thing to do because we have a situation of quite low capacities and resources in some areas. It's another reason why this is an iterative process. It can't just happen within three years because the capacities of local government are increasing at the same time and need to be really supported to do that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, so our next speaker is uh, Maria Carajia Perez, uh, who is the Community-Based Adaptation Project Manager for CARE PNG, 
uh, based in Bukka in uh, Bougainville. Um, and she's previously worked for the Red Cross and for the UNDP. I might just also add that we'll have an opportunity for questions at the end um, once all four speakers have spoken. Um, Maria. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Maria, and I'm very new to Care International. I started working with them only four months and a half ago in the Bougainville. Uh, I'm working in the Atolls with a climate change adaptation, climate change resilient project. I'm going to give an overview uh, about the care intervention in the Atolls during the last five years. What are the challenges and the characteristics of these people? What are the achievements of a climate change adaptation project there? And also, what are the needs still that they've got, uh, like uh, some sort of um, points, like why these people still need a lot of assistance? Um, uh, I find it important to, to locate uh, where the atolls are. As you can see, are uh, in the north of Bougainville uh, province and within New Britain, in a channel of a uh, lot of exchange of strong, strong waves and a lot of currents. They are very uh, remote and they are really isolated. They are like 160 kilometers away from Buka with no transport. Uh, with, uh, sometimes we rely a lot on weather forecast, which is very difficult to get it more than four or five days in advance, and still it changes a lot. So we know when we go, we don't know when we can come back. Uh, also, uh, the, island, the atolls are really, I mean, as they are, it's very low. The higher, highest point is 30 meters over the sea level. The population there is uh, around 7,000 people distributed in 21 villages. Three villages in the Northern Island, which is Pinnepal, and uh, 18 villages on, on Nissan. Uh, yeah, so, and the population is 50-50 male and female. 100% of the people there live uh, from the natural resources available in the atolls. That means that they don't have... Uh, fresh water springs. If it doesn't rain, they don't have fresh water to drink, fresh water to take a shower, fresh water to cook, or fresh water to put into their gardens. And also they depend a lot on the, the fisheries they've got around, the lagoon or the open sea, uh, the fruit trees they've got, the galet nut or pau, uh, mangroves, they also eat the mangrove as a staple, especially in the pineapple in the north. Uh, it takes two, day, two days to prepare it. So, uh, and the life there, the livelihood there is really subsistence, subsistence. They don't have any cash income economy. Uh, probably if they are able to send uh, some lobsters to Buka, they can sell the lobsters in Buka. In Pinnepal, it costs uh, less than one dollar, one lobster. Uh, probably in Buka, they get like 10 times uh, higher price. Uh, common problem in the atolls is the land shortage. And also the soil they've got is very poor developed, so it's not very deep. Uh, it's not very fertile, so it has a lot of uh, challenges for them to grow different crops that are uh, demanding in terms of nutrients. Also, uh, now they complain a lot they've got a high population growth, which put over pressure onto their resources. Before they were okay because the population was not really big and the natural resources were still in a healthy situation. Now uh, more people, more demand for food. So more fishing, more harvesting of timber, more, uh, yeah, more, uh, more food gardens, but they don't, have, they don't have land, they cannot also expand their gardens, yeah? Um, what else? Um, 
Yeah, and also, uh, as it was mentioned before, these people is really, really, really vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. In the case of, uh, in the case of Pinepal, they suffer a lot of, uh, sometimes, uh, king tides. Uh, king tides, uh, coastal erosion, El Niño situation there, it didn't put too much stress on the water, but uh, isolate them for a couple of months due to the strong winds. So if there are strong winds, nobody can travel to the atolls, and that's very difficult. I was in July, and I couldn't travel to the atolls until the end of August. So it took me two months to go there. And, uh, and also in terms of uh, gender equality, uh, is one of the 13 districts in Bougainville, which is patrilineal and patriarchal society, by traditional. So it's very hard uh, sometimes to really uh, expect a huge progress on gender empowerment and equality, but slowly these type of projects are getting, uh, are making some, some improvements. Just to give this just an idea of the situation there. Uh, Kerr has been working in the Atos uh, during the last five years. Uh, the first one was 2010-2012 uh, with a European funded project which provide uh, water and sanitation to the islands uh, only in Nissan. So they were there for a couple of years, uh, providing water tanks and water catchments for the communities to be able to, to live. And after that, it came like an Australian-funded project, the original community-based adaptation project that was mentioned before, uh, based on food security. And uh, it was until the, the evaluation was in April this year. And now I'm implementing, I'm in charge of implementing the, the second phase of the CBA project, which is funded by the American government. And this time it's got a strong component of fisheries, fisheries management. And also we continue supporting activities from the previous project on agriculture. And uh, yeah, ah, well, we put also a small, a small but very important fund uh, in the disaster risk reduction from, I think, from Australia. And we are trying to complement that fund to cover some gaps on the American project. And it's been very useful uh, to finalize the job from the previous manager on the identifying all the disasters in the island and the, especially to prioritize which are the most important ones. And with the, we've got a little of money and the main issue for the people there is the lack of water. They are really worried about the water also because the families expand and the water capacity is the same as five years ago, so they need more water too. And what we are going to do is uh, to try to repair the old water tanks they've got from the war. It's like a concrete and fiberglass, so we're going to help them to manage them. Um, and this is a bit an overview what, what are the activities of the CBA project there. As you can see on the right, it's uh, like a water catchment that is uh, like it's got probably two or three water containers. <laughs> that provide water for the entire community. Um, what else? The, the Australian project was very important in the island of, of Pinepal in the north because that island was not covered by the European Union project. So the people there have a lot of problems to, to have access to water. And with the CBA project, they, they made these water catchments. Um, and CARE uh, initiated an implementation strategy uh, very good working with the core groups that uh, in each core group uh, comprises like three villages and within that three villages you've got a youth group or a women group or like a sort of fisherman group. And these people is the one uh, attending the trainings and later on uh, 
extending the training they've got with the rest of the community. And now uh, the government is trying to use this, uh, this system set up by TER to implement other projects from other organizations. And people wanted to, let's say, to formalize and uh, connect to the government structure in place. Um, yes, I mentioned before, very important uh, agricultural training for them. So we use resources and we make partnerships with other, uh, other NGOs or research institutions, like for example, uh, National Research uh, Institute, Agricultural Institute in PNG, which uh, came with us to Tunisia and helped uh, uh, teach uh, some, uh, train, uh, some uh, techniques to be able to grow better, uh, like uh, root crops. Because the soil is very poor, what they do, they lift it a little bit the land in little mountains, and that helps, like the cassava and all these crops to grow better. And also, it implements some uh, kitchen garden, so women doesn't have to go and walk a lot to get to their normal gardens. They've got a small little one next to their house, so they can just get some veggies and cook it quickly. And also, it was very important, uh, the cook stop distribution, a care supply, like 1,400 units of these uh, of these uh, cooking stoves, and they, they, I mean, still everybody is asking for them, yeah, because our energy efficiency, they reduce the time of women collecting firewood, they reduce the type of uh, the time, the amount of uh, timber needed for cooking, and they are yeah reducing also the smoke. Uh, livestock training because they've got a problem with pigs. They've got a lot of wild pigs in the island, and the wild pigs invade their gardens. And instead of putting like a fence within the wild pigs, they put a fence over the gardens, and that is even more resources. So we teach them also how to manage these things. Uh, mangrove management, also uh, we are doing community DRR action plans, but also build from the communities the district action plan. Um, also, uh, we are working very strongly now on fisheries. They are, we trained the last week, uh, people from each community to be part of data collectors. So they will be measuring fish and identifying the fish species they've got to be able to have a database at the end. Nutrition training to be able also to reduce pressure on the fisheries and eat more veggies and meat. Uh, they demand a lot of boat and safety and security measures. So we're trying to also provide some assistance on that. And so why? Why is important to continue supporting these adults? It's because uh, well, I mean, there are, there are really a lot of uh, achievements there because they are very isolated. The community is really engaged, it's really proactive. They don't have resources, but they can give you some idea and make a concept note or provide you a profile of something. So that's very, very rewarding that even they don't have so much things, they can give you all the data you need and they work really good. So... There is a great engagement, the proactiveness, empowerment. We have a great, great partnership now, working with the local, local uh, council of elders, the Nissan District Administration, and different departments in Bougainville, like the Fisheries Authority and Disaster Management Office. We work with the other NGOs also to help us when we don't have the resources. Um, we've got a very efficient implementation strategy. We try to have all the resources in-house because if not, it's very difficult to do logistics in our trips. And uh, it's, the community, it's the community the one that requests for more assistance. They've got, they are preparing a concept note on solar and rural electrification because with that, they can probably have like a, 
uh, access to internet or be able to check the weather forecast, be better informed where they travel to Buka. They want something with the rave market. <coughs> Sorry, with the rave markers just to have more security during the night if they have to navigate. Um, yeah, so in, they've got a lot of ideas. They are consuming every day, every day when I when they're with things. So that's a, bit, a little bit an overview of what the CBA project does in, in Buka. All right, thank you. So our third speaker is uh, Cornelio Asse, who is the uh, Health Force and Humanitarian Manager at Oxfam Timor-Leste. Um, recently started with Oxfam Timor-Leste. Before that, uh, worked for Caritas Australia for eight years um, and one of the, the last role as uh, Program Manager for the DFAT-funded Climate Change Adaptation Program. Cornelio. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much indeed uh, for this opportunity. And I think I'm glad to see new faces here. So it's good. Uh, uh, my name is Cornelio Asse. Cornelio, probably easier uh, to say. And I, and I think I've involved in this program in 2012. Uh, with the Climate Change Adaptation Program, which is a consortium, including uh, uh, Caritas Australia Ceres and Oxfam, is the lead of the consortium. Uh, this program this actually uh, started the second phase in 2012. It is a two and a half years program. And before that, in 2010, uh, that's the first phase of the program started with participatory action research and some of uh, the community action plan. So we come, uh, arrive at the second phase of the program. So we're looking at uh, uh, improving land and water conservations, uh, which is uh, just based on the, the uh, key findings from the first program, the first phase of the program. Uh, it's found that, you know, agriculture is actually uh, uh, bringing some sort of uh, uh, impacted by the, cl the climate change. And the majority of the uh, rural communities, which is actually uh, 80, more than 80% of the, uh, the whole population are farmers, which is getting impacted uh, mostly from the climate change impact. So I think some of the uh, key uh, issues here is related with the uh, low production, which is low yield, which is later on affected to uh, the uh, increase of uh, hunger seasons uh, in, in, that, in that country. So if we look at that, the agriculture production is getting down. That's, just, that's because of the uh, increase of rainfall, which is in, in some part of the area uh, impacted, you know, reducing the, the yield. And also in some other part, also looking at the long drought in the country, uh, which is related with the, the high rainfall. It's looking at the increase of erosion, which is uh, causing or giving uh, the low uh, soil uh, productivity. And also during the drought, it's giving uh, the less of water table uh, during that time. 
and the increase of disease also a part of that sort of uh, climates, uh, the difference of raining and, and the dry seasons. So in this case, we're looking at because of the erosions, which is then causing, you know, in, in improving, increasing the waterways, which is end up with the, the, the inundation or maybe floods. Uh, one, once we, uh, we analyze or we are uh, looking at these sort of problems, we come up that this is because of the farming practice, the shifting, subsisting farming practice, which is actually done it by the farmers. When we look at the farmers, we think of this is because of lack of the skills, knowledge, which is because they're doing uh, farming from one to another place every year. So it's happening for many, many years, which is later on leaving uh, the soil or the lands is very bare, which is then later on, once the, uh, the, the climate change happening, for example, looking at the high increase of rainfall, then increasing the erosions, and, 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 and finally, uh, influencing or affecting the agricultural products. And so we focus on Im improving the, the farmers' knowledge and skills and try to find some other options in terms of uh, techniques and the technologies to improve the production of uh, the community. Um, so based on sort of that scenario, simple scenario, we come up with you know, certain numbers of, of, of uh, uh, components of the key programs that we're actually uh, looking at. Uh, the first one, as I mentioned, that we, we, we did the participatory action research. So then we identify some of the key, uh, the key factors that actually contributed uh, why people affecting from the climate change. So we come back, we try to encourage community to learn, you know, to understand about the local uh, climate change impact to their life. So we encourage them to identify the problems that's happening in the community and encourage them to sort of uh, identify lo some local knowledge that they can respond to the, to the problem by themselves. And then understanding uh, the outsider inputs that can contribute to improve their, their life. Uh, yeah, this is the community action plan. We actually uh, working with through the community groups in the village uh, across the uh, the partners, the CRS, Oxfam, and Caritas, because uh, CRS and Oxfam working through the partners, uh, local partners, and Caritas work directly to the community group. So this is uh, aims to uh, gather some sort of information from the community to understand the resources, local resources available, the capacity that available in the community to respond to the climate change uh, and, and how they improve their, uh, as I mentioned, through the agriculture production. Uh, again, women and children and some other uh, disabled people has become more vulnerable to the, the climate change. So we, we in, in this case, we tried to uh, encourage uh, women to understand uh, the problems and, and encourage them to find the solutions uh, in, in, in sort of their uh, situations. Um, 
once they got the information, they sort of uh, formulated into the community action plan. We kept, we tried to uh, build this sort of uh, planning, uh, presented to the local government, uh, to the local authority, uh, in terms of getting other support that might government can provide it. And uh, it's actually uh, successfully presented to the government and also to the other organizations in terms of getting technical support from Ministry of Agriculture and some other uh, uh, support coming from uh, the social uh, ministry uh, in, terms of, in terms of the disaster and, and other humanitarian response. Uh, because of going back to the practice, because farmers doing sort of um, have sort of malpractice long uh, many years, so we come up with an idea in terms of uh, establishing demonstration, uh, building a demonstration, encourage uh, farmers to do demonstrations. So this demonstration actually uh, we 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 encourage them to establish permanent garden. Yeah. And there's some other interventions. Uh, this is the demonstration plot. Mostly we encourage women to understand techniques and some new skills. And then another one is related with some mitigation activities. We encourage them to uh, establish uh, nursery. We establish community nursery in the, com in, in the village. And they selected uh, other other. Uh, other native trees that actually they can use to, uh, for the uh, conservation. Uh, mostly on the water spring area and the landslide area. And another one is looking at the, the Tarawandu, I think local uh, custom or local regulations to protect uh, some of the native forests and also the water springs. And capacity building again is become the priority to do it directly in the community, together with the community, so that they can become, uh, understand and and become sort of a cultural. So it's, just, it's a cultural change in terms of the practice, uh, putting, bringing the new ideas to the community. Saving and loans, this is another one, which is actually also uh, contributing positively to uh, people to respond any climate change, basically uh, related with uh, the use of money that they borrow uh, to respond to any emergency needs in the community. Uh, another one, uh, looking at building a collaboration with government and other uh, stakeholders to support uh, bringing the new ideas to the community. Um, this is some of the, the, the key uh, program outputs, as I mentioned, that there are some you know, demonstrate uh, the uh, permanent gardens. The, this, those numbers represent the, the units, the numbers of activities that we actually uh, uh, implemented in the community. Uh, there are some, the program impacts, we look at the household level, the increase of knowledge of the farmers, and we try to, uh, there are some income generating from the activity from selling the, the, the produce, saving and credit, as I mentioned, it's also uh, support them to uh, get some uh, responding to the basic needs of the community. On the community level, they have community action plan, 
which is later on uh, together they uh, conserve uh, the area, the water stream. There is sort of a, a, a reduction slash banning in the community because of the establishment of permanent garden in each of the, uh, the household. Tarabandu is another path which has uh, become now well or adopted by the government. So it's, it's now uh, becoming one of the achievements to have on the district level, the sort of uh, support from the government, the sort of awareness, the community, the government actually also try to integrate some of the activities uh, through the Ministry of Agriculture. One on the national level, looking at the uh, sort of an advocacy, try to support uh, or uh, influence the government, the, especially at the national level, also to include uh, uh, or to take the climate change uh, impact as an issue on the national level. Uh, as we work with the partners, I think partners are getting sort of an understanding, uh, better understanding in delivering the program to the community and also manage the program uh, itself. Uh, there's some lesson learned. I think this is some of the uh, lessons we get. I think for the first point, this has been sort of an awareness, understanding of, about the climate change. Uh, just because of the time frame is very, very uh, short, it is actually difficult to measure the impacts of the program. So we publish, as I mentioned, we look at capacity building and things, and then a little bit practice, practical work on demonstration plots. So actually the time frame is very short to look at the impact. And I think there are some other uh, things looking at uh, learning by doing things. So we basically uh, encourage farmers to do more practical work rather than on theory, uh, theoretical. So we are actually bringing some new ideas and integrated local knowledge in the community. And I think there's uh, some recommendations. So I think it's there. Probably we can just look at the first point. It's the time frame probably needs, if, if we, have, we still have other program, we probably need uh, to extend or to expand uh, the, the, the time. Uh, yeah, I think, I think in, in, in general the recommendation is because of community understands there's a climate change happening and I think they are aware about that and, and they want, they're willing to continue this program as long as there is sort of a long time frame. I think that's, that's the sum up I would uh, say. Thank you very much indeed for the effort. And if the speakers had to skip over anything, there will be an opportunity to take it up with them in question time. So uh, next is Pia Treichel, who is the Program Manager for Climate Change Adaptation at Plan International Australia. Okay, thanks very much, everyone. Um, I'm here representing both Plan International and uh, Save the Children. We've done two joint projects funded out of the community-based action grants, one in the Philippines and one in Vietnam. So these examples will be particularly out of the Philippines, but they, we have a similar framework that we followed in Vietnam, and they could just as easily be from there. So the, um, uh, as I said, we worked in consortium. Um, 
the project had a budget of $3 million each, and they aimed to build the adaptive capacity of children and their communities to manage the impacts of climate change themselves by embedding that, or, or together with embedding that, into national and local government systems and using local government uh, initiatives. So the project's theory of change focuses on, on three areas that knowledge and education would inform action that would in turn inform policy and practice. And so those are the three areas that I'm going to talk about, the sort of activities that we've undertaken through the project and then some lessons learned. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say before I started, though, was that there are lots of reasons that you might work on child-centred climate change adaptation. So it's, um, you know, it's nice. It feels good to work with kids. Um, you know, it feels hopeful and optimistic. And when we talk about climate change, it's a very literal, they are the future. We will all be sunning ourselves in our retirement villages when they are just starting their adult lives and really starting to enter those lives in a world that has been changed by things that they didn't do, that we did, and a world that they're going to inherit. So there's a, a kind of moral justice argument for working with children. Uh, there is also a vulnerability reason for working with children, and that's also about how, why we targeted these particular areas. The eastern seaboard of the Philippines is incredibly vulnerable to uh, typhoons and uh, storms, storm surges, all of these things, and we know that they're going to get more frequent, more intense. All of these impacts are going to be worse in the future. So there's vulnerability because of geographic location, there's vulnerability because of their economic situation, and there's vulnerability because of their age and their development. But the thing that I want to emphasise in this presentation that Save the Children... Um, Corinne is here from Save the Children, so you can also talk to Corinne. Um, but that we wanted to emphasise today was that working on child-centred climate change adaptation, community-based adaptation, what we have learnt and what we have demonstrated through this project funded by the community-based adaptation grants is that it works. It's an effective way to build communities' uh, capacity to cope with the impacts of adaptation. So it, it's, it's an effective uh, reason, not just a, a moral reason. So under that area of knowledge, we had a um, heavy focus on uh, education and informing people. Uh, a lot of school and um, uh, curriculum-based material, there's some of the um, uh, flip charts that we use, but also this peer-to-peer -peer education model was something that we tried to embed a lot of so that children don't just learn about it, but that they feel empowered to talk to other children and expand the reach uh, that they're working on. We also did some community-based work, and then also um, this is a picture of the, what we called self-learning kits. They're essentially curriculum development that was done together with the Department of Education, uh, teachers, principals, and so on, across a range of subjects, or six or seven subjects, uh, from grades three to nine, so there's 164 in total that were developed and they're being rolled out across the regions that we uh, implemented. Um, the second area is action. So as I say, the knowledge is... Um, it's designed such that once you have that better understanding of climate change causes, climate change impacts, and potential climate change adaptation actions, uh, then you can move on to the, the action stage. So like lots of the projects, we looked at a participatory vulnerability and capacity assessment program. So these are pictures of the kinds of activities that as a community, as a school, as a youth group or any other group of people you might um, run these participatory vulnerability and capacity assessments to understand what's valuable to your community, what's being affected by climate change, and by understanding that, what you would like to prioritise to uh, do your adaptation actions. So uh, one of the things that came out of this was that um, where we had targeted, there were four provinces, four provinces, and uh, 
within each of those provinces, we did some pilot barangays uh, of villages. So it meant that we weren't able to reach all of the villages within each of those municipalities. But what two of the municipalities came back to us and said that they really valued the experience of running out these um, uh, PCVAs with their communities. And so could we uh, document this and formalise the process for them so that they then could go and run this with the rest of the villages that they work with? So we were really pleased with that, with that outcome. Um, based on the outcomes of the... PCVA, you know, you do your analysis, you understand what's important to you, and then you design your actions. And so we had a small grants fund, small grants facility to help fund some of those, um, the, the top actions that communities and school groups and others prioritised. So this here is, a, um, well, the, the kinds of actions they did really varied widely. They ranged from things like um, vermiculture or worm farms. We had some uh, freshwater, um, rainwater harvesting, some... Uh, flood control, improving drainage because they're now getting increased sort of intense rainfall, so communities flood. Uh, I can't remember what else they wrote down on my list. Mushroom farming, a youth group in um, Save the Children's province. We're looking at mushroom farming, so some really diverse groups. This is a women's community savings and loan group in uh, northern Samar. They were enormously successful. It's a, um, an area in which regular sort of the concept of saving, the concept of banking is really foreign. People don't put aside money. They don't have a lot of money to put aside, but that idea of um, putting aside money for a rainy day is not, not something that's culturally familiar to them. So through this uh, experience, we've now, uh, they've raised, I don't have the figures on me, but I know it's one and a half million Filipino pesos, which I think is about 36,000 Australian dollars off the cuff, which is a huge amount of money, which then they have available to them that they as a group decide how they will loan out to communities in times of need. So when a typhoon hits and your house gets destroyed, you can go back to the community savings and loan group and uh, they will loan you money at an interest rate of slightly under 2% to pay back um, as and when you can. So that, that's been a great achievement. That's the care group in Onani, which is on the, um, the, in eastern Samar, a youth group that is doing um, its own advocacy and action around climate change. So they... Their uh, activity costs almost nothing. They have a, um, uh, it's really self-funded and it's about their own enthusiasm to get the message of climate change out there. But one of the things they've been very effective at is getting a seat at the municipal council so that their voices are heard when the government is making decisions about climate change. And then this is the community radio groups that we run in both the plan and the save uh, areas. And they have been, I mean, they're enormously successful. They have a huge uh, listenership, but... They interview uh, experts on climate change. They update weather forecasts. Uh, they're really helping to empower children to feel confident in their ability to communicate about climate change as well as giving them a set of skills that would otherwise never, um, never be available to them. So policy and practice. Um, these are just a couple of examples of the kinds of um, uh, orders and changes that are being made in, um, at the local level in some of the areas that we work. And they're, they're the kind of tangible changes that you really want to see out of a project like this, but they're pretty boring to look at. Um, but we've seen a lot of, um, I, I guess one of the things we've benefited most from in this project has been that we've had some great champions. Um, and that's the vice mayor of uh, Ernani Council who has really gotten on board with this project. And he tells a lovely story about his, uh, basically because his daughter came home from school one day and said climate change is real. And so that's what got him moving. Uh, we try and do a lot of uh, getting children's voices into a whole lot of forums, so uh, getting them out there. I, 
I might tell you about that story later, but I'm uh, working with a different government department is the point of that, the Philippine um, uh, Meteorological Services. Uh, and just to acknowledge that we also partnered with the University of Technology Sydney's um, Institute for Sustainable Futures to develop some indicators on how you measure the success of your initiative. So that's, that's been a really innovative piece of work that's come out of this. Uh, yeah, that's just a table on reach, but just to kind of, I think sometimes it's nice to have the numbers. How many people are you really reaching? And to show that although we're child-centred, it's not only children who benefit from our projects. They need to be part of a wider community that benefits. But what I wanted to talk about was, um, there are just five last bullets, um, but uh, these are our lessons learned from, um, from our projects. And that first one is the first point that I was trying to say, that, um, you know, Child-centred community-based adaptation is effective. Um, we don't work with children just because they're vulnerable, even though that's a very powerful motivator, but it, it's effective, and it's effective not just for children but for their wider community. Uh, it, it needn't be considered an alternative approach. A child-centred lens can be applied to, to any of our projects and across any of our sectors in international development, and it would have benefits for all of our projects. So there's, there's a lot to be learned there for our wider development programming. One of the things that we've certainly learnt, and both Corinne and I have really felt this personally, or seen this personally, is that as with community-based adaptation in general, we as a sector are still learning about what works. We're still, we don't have a, a sort of handbook that everyone understands, this is how you do community-based adaptation. It's still an emerging field, and that's certainly true for child-centred community-based adaptation too. So we're very grateful for this project because it's provided some evidence that we can take away. You know, we've demonstrated and we've documented some of the uh, lessons from how you can go about this um, as we continue our work on this in the future. Uh, the fourth point that, yeah, like women and ethnic minorities, children have a unique perspective that they can bring, and that's, that's about both their their perspective on understanding risk, but also their ability to come up with locally appropriate uh, solutions and strategies. So there's great benefit to be had by hearing those voices. And then finally, those, those solutions are often very low cost and they're almost always locally relevant because of their particular uh, viewpoint and, and experience in the world. So they, they don't only benefit children, but as I keep saying, they, um, they benefit the wider community too. So... Um, I think that's it from me. Um, uh, Ed had actually asked me if I could say just, just one more minute um, to talk about uh, some overall reflections on the community-based action grants in general as, as one of the development agencies. And I guess I just wanted to um, reiterate one of the points that was made earlier that you, know, you can see from what we've been talking about, it's great to have not just the practitioners but others talking about the effectiveness of this work, that it's been, you know, Kate has shown it's important, it's effective, and it's had an impact at the local level. And I think it's important to keep thinking about that local level as we move into COP and we all start to think about parties and uh, states, that we have a tendency to think about vulnerability at the national level. And we need to keep thinking about what it means at the community level. And that's doing these community-based action grants has really made an impact at the community level. And I hope that we can continue to have an impact moving forward. Thank you. So we'll have the questions now. If I could ask our four speakers to come up to the front here, please. Um, 
While they do that, I'll also just point out that uh, these cards are um, sitting on the table just outside and they have a link um, to the uh, Community-Based Climate Change Action Grants Program website uh, with all the documents produced under um, that program. So uh, feel free to take these um, as you leave. Uh, we're going a little over time, so I might extend the question time to about 10 past two. If you need to leave earlier than that, please feel free to do so. There's a door at the back that you can use. Um, given the number of people that we have here, we might take a number of questions at a time. Uh, so please keep your questions very short. Uh, and if you'd like to a particular person to answer your question, please direct it towards that person. Maybe you'd like to start and just talk in a really loud voice, given that you don't have the microphone. Oh, yeah, no I'm going to try my best. Uh, thank you very much. That, that was obviously for uh, really, really good presentations. And thanks to all of you for, for preparing them and uh, giving us um, a glimpse into uh, some of the results and outcomes on the ground. So I've got a question, and it might be a little bit difficult, but uh, you know, you can stay within the visionary slash kind of idea space with that. But, uh, you, you pointed out some of the, not, not only the successes and the things that we really work and that, it, that it's all a work in progress with community-based adaptation in general, but uh, also some of the constraints like from uh, low capacity in, in local governments, um, the questions how sustainable some of the measures that are implemented at the community level actually are going to be once NGOs might pull out or there's not funding anymore. Now, um, if, if you turn that around, and look at, at the higher level, it, it is obviously quite likely that most of the climate change funding that is going to come down in the years to come through the Green Climate Fund, for example, is going to be very large buckets of money that donors are going to try to handle as efficiently uh, and economically as possible for them, so it's going to stay really, really deep. Um, that is then matching the challenge of having not only the communities that you're working in, but we have thousands, thousands of communities across Asia, across the Pacific, um, in remote locations. Um, the, the billion dollar question there is obviously how can you connect these two? So what, what is your vision and what, what are the things that you can actually take away from these uh, three years? How community-based adaptation can really be realized within that framework? How can we make sure and what, what can the different players from the NGOs through governments actually do to really try to scale up, reach as many communities as possible in a sustainable way with the way that the funding is very popular. <coughs> okay, so I did say that we have uh, three questions, but that is a very broad question. So I might just um, have our panel answer that first and then we'll... So, would you like to start? Yeah, if I can. I mean, I think it's an excellent question. Um, I don't know, uh, Doc, if you came to the community-based uh, adaptation conference that was held uh, earlier this year in Kenya, but that was one of the overarching themes of the conference, which was dedicated to community-based adaptation, was how do you link up uh, national-level actions, which is where a large amount of money are likely to flow through, to bottom-up uh, actions, which in many cases are, we know, what really make a difference to communities' lives. And I think, for me... At, 
this point in time, the critical thing is about making sure that we're documenting the evidence of what works at the local level. So I think um, events like today are so important because it means it's not just about what Plan and Save have learned from our project, but how have each of our organisations as a program contributed to the community-based adaptation space? What are we contributing to the sector and what can we learn from others in the sector? Because it, it really is emerging and what you want is to have a set of uh, actions and approaches that are easily replicable in any context so that they can then be taken uh, from those larger funding sources and potentially rolled out in other places, which at the moment we're just doing, as you say, in a very sporadic and ad hoc way, so it's hard to have that large-scale reach. But I think it also needs a willingness on behalf of governments to make sure that they are linking national action with um, what they're learning on the ground, because often we find that the communities that we're working with we're working with them because they're, they're not well serviced by national governments. So relying on national governments to be able to filter things down to them simply isn't working. Um, so we need to, to keep funding and we need to keep working with the most vulnerable who are not currently sourced and resourced at the national level. Did you want to elaborate that? Um, uh, I can add something? Yes. Yeah, I'll go along. Okay. Uh, from my experience, I think it's important in terms of sustainability to have the community, the, the full engagement of the community and to really prioritize the needs they really identify as priorities. So if you go with an idea and it's not fitting into their plans or it's not fitting into what they really need, you are going to waste the time, the resources and everything. So you have to ask them what they really want and all that list to help them to visualize slowly you know, how they can move step by step into the development process. This is on one side. On the other side, uh, usually NGOs uh, work uh, sometimes, not all the time, or we work uh, all the time, uh, sometimes with communities, and not too much with government, or government see like the NGO not really like uh, a strategic partner sometimes. I think it's very important to, to try to engage them and to see that we are part of, uh, let's see, their development, and we can fill some of the gaps they've got, some of the uh, gap in terms of resources, but could be financial, could be... Uh, technical capital, you know, we've got uh, different views. We are sometimes much more at the ground level than them. So it's very important to bring them on board. For example, in my case, uh, when I get to Uka in July, I was very new. I need to understand the project, the context and everything. And what I do, even if they don't support me, I go to their office and I inform them about our activities. I keep all the time them informed about what we are doing, even if they don't, if they don't request me anything. Because later on, they, you know, it's easier for them to to collaborate with you, or the, at least they know you are there. Also, I think it's very important uh, coordination. For example, in Atolls, like uh, in the place where I am, CARE is the only organization that travels at least once a month if weather is, uh, is, is good for traveling. Um, for example, uh, they lack uh, medical supplies. They don't have fuel. They don't have uh, food. When we go there, we have to bring our own fuel to go and come back we have to bring our food for us. And uh, we offer our services to the hospital. Uh, we try, for example, uh, Plan International is opening an office in Wuhan. They came to talk to us and it's uh, a way to perhaps help them to provide services in the outdoors. Uh, we bring the Red Cross uh, this last week when I was there because people wanted to know uh, what the Red Cross does. Red, Red Cross was very close with the disaster management office. So they go together. So I offer to them, okay, let's come with me because the community know that the NGO is there at the time, but they want to see the government support behind the NGO. So 
that's at least my experience in 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 Luca or in this other four months and a half. So I think by doing that is is easier to do something sustainable and strengthen the capacities of everybody together. I think I just can I just make one okay. one comment because it's a slightly different um, perspective because of the role that I've had over time in, in this. Um, I think that in a lot of countries the mandate for community development rests at local government level. So it's 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 sometimes not all that relevant to connect too closely with national governments. And I think the position at the moment is that where there's not a high priority in national governments for community-based adaptation, that can be a fairly unrewarding um, exercise. But as that political will grows, obviously there'll be a lot more opportunity and donors can't really change that political will, even though they often try. It's a thing that has to happen internally in the countries um, with all of their international, their own international negotiations and things. Um, in terms of, of uh, making those connections between projects and local governments real, it takes time and it's got a lot to do with iterative development of the experiences that you build in the communities and the capacities and resources of local governments to be able to engage and support those. In a lot of places, that's, that's not... You know, it's developing, it's evolving. In tandem, we don't know enough about community adaptation on the ground, we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, mm. both in terms of the weather impacts. We know what we're seeing now, but locally in terms of what's going to happen, you know, even in the immediate future, is, is uncertain, and how well the inbuilt systems that people have in their livelihoods can cope with that, we don't really know enough about that yet, and that's where we should start. But there are a lot of other options that can be tested out on the ground, and we've seen some of those that we, we need to develop the experience of a lot more before we can say, OK, we know enough now to scale this out to lots of different places. Um, it's the way the development happens. It has to be quite iterative and really well informed as you go. Fantastic. Now, did you want to say anything now? Or? Yeah, can I just... Yes, OK. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> I think in terms of the constraints... Uh, probably just look at the community base. Uh, again, it is just because of the education, the lack of information, uh, which is that the community access to in terms of the climate information, in terms of uh, uh, there is sort of, uh, because most of the community in, in the rural areas are literacy. They cannot read and write. There's, there's, there's some, some of the constraints, just actually, uh, because one and, and, and another one is because linked to the culture. One, it is very hard in terms of, you know, when you change the behavior of people. It needs sometimes. It's not, not very, uh, it's not easy to say that, okay, you do this, and then we expect it tomorrow or maybe the next, after next month, they're going to change. So it actually is, is, it is actually related to how fast you give the information to the community, how regularly you give provide the information to community to make sort of a, sort of a change, behavior change, once they understand. Because people in Timor, for example, they don't care about theory of things. They just want to see 
if they see it is good, then they will go back and do it. And then it's, it slowly it gets changed. I mean, because other countries is probably the way people approach to the other countries is different to others. So it's like in Timor, when you go to the village, if, for example, I just pick an example, you put a board there and you can explain like this, people will know, no, that's boring. So it's good to sort of bring some more practical information to the community, they will understand. There's some of the constraints. So I'm actually coming from that sort of area in terms of understanding sort of the people, and then we probably have to do some sort of, as I mentioned, a demonstration. Bring them and do it together, and then slowly they can change. This, and another part is with the finance. People in the community, of course, there's some people are very strong in terms of easy to engage. Once easy to engage with them, they need sort of financial support. It's not a big thing. I mean, in terms of, for example, when I did uh, introduce uh, infiltration well, which is just cost only $250 US, they can build, if we have $1,000, they can build maybe five or six water uh, infiltration well to improve the water table of the well that they need for community. And it's, it works. I mean, Financially, talking about ownership of the activities, I think motivation, incentive is very important for the people to do something. Apart from learning, but they also do practice and they feel that they own the program. So I think this the challenge is actually lesson learned, I mean, giving us sort of an indication how we're gonna approach them. So I think that's some of the challenge. And how we're going to approach them, I think, giving sort of sustainability, sustainability is actually pointing, you know, people that who actually have sort of a spirit to mobilize the community. So that's why we choose community organizer or the community champion or farmer champion who actually can voluntarily to support, you know, other communities to the uh, different groups and try to expand the programs to the other community. And then looking at the NGO as the agent of change in the community. So local NGO is part of, it's, it's, we can see as the biggest agents of change that we can, you know, from like us, international agencies actually transferring the knowledge, the capacity to the NGO. So I think another challenge is with the local NGO. Sometimes we want to give sort of a large amount of money, but sometimes we have to be focused on you know, building the capacity of them, whether they're able to manage or whether they have the capacity in terms of uh, technical experts so that they can be able to uh, deliver uh, effectively, efficiently uh, uh, the money or the funds that we actually provide to the community. I think, thanks. That's yeah, thank you very much. So, I've got a question here at the front. Uh, thank you, thank you, Chair. Uh, first, let me thank uh, Crawford for organizing this event and uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, um, and of course, I'd like to firstly thank uh, the uh, Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Trace and Mr. Geoff for comment uh, this morning. Um, and also thank the presentations, uh, presenters. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed your presentations and uh, 
And, you know, for the Pacific and for PNG, you know, we have national crisis. Um, and the Pacific uh, Forum meeting, you know, we've, you know, come up with uh, declarations on climate change and different countries have their own policies as well. And, uh, you know, and, and Pacific is, is known for, uh, is one of the most workshop regions. And forever we talk about policies. And I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, discussions on policies. And uh, I'm really a fan and, and somebody who supports action on the ground. And I'm very, I really enjoyed the presentations uh, this afternoon. Uh, you guys are doing a remarkable job on the ground. Uh, and I must uh, commend you uh, highly for it. Um, and I think action is what is required. And uh, you are at the forefront of it. You're able to share this experience with us, uh, for, uh, for which I, uh, I commend you. Um, uh, and in terms of, uh, you know, um, your, your presentation is um, this one. I think you know you all implemented. I mean, in doing various projects and all uh, the questions are all applicable. Uh, but uh, from Maria, I, I, if I can ask you, just give me. You know, you talked about the two islands, but there are thousands of other islands out here in Papua New Guinea, and I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, some good work uh, that are going on in in in, in, um, in other parts of the country, uh, but. The issue of climate change is really affecting everybody. And all those islands, and one of those islands is the Kadarad Islands. Uh, and there's talk of most, some people already being relocated on the, on the island, on the main island of Bobbinville. So if, if you can give probably some uh, perspectives on that, the, the material relocation issue. Um, and then secondly, I want to touch is sustainability is very, very important. Uh, you are there doing remarkable work but you're not going to be there forever. So I think community ownership is very, very important. And then support from the local authorities and the government is very important. So uh, I don't know how. That, that, that must be a key you know, focus of your effort because you, while you're doing that important work, you need a good effort to be sustained so you can also give some uh, indications on how you are uh, going along in terms of Bridging that gap, and maybe some whether there is actual support from the government, both the national government and the provincial and local level government assistance. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Okay. We might just hold off for now, and we'll get a few questions. This might be the last round. Um, so, who else had a question? Yes, it's one at the back here. Yes, uh, it's a broad question. Uh, is is the I think I'm a so I've written down this question. Is scientific technology playing any role in adapting the irrigation and agricultural practices to respond to climate change? And if yes, how are we harboring uh, the, these technologies? Yes, and uh, we've got a question here for Francis. This is just for all the panelists. I guess you've all had different perspectives on uh, visiting these projects and seeing some different um, different things happening at community level. So far for you, um, what has been the what has been the highlights of your experience in engaging with the CBCCAG program? All right. And any final questions? Last chance. Otherwise, you can talk to the panelists afterwards, of course. All right. So we've got a question on uh, relocation. Uh, another on sustainability. About the role of technology in climate change adaptation, and then um, this question on the, the highlights of this working part of this program. So, uh, each of our uh, panelists can speak um, 
Thank you for the question about the relocation. Um, as I mentioned, I'm very new in the climate change in Buka. I know, uh, I know the cartels, I know where they are. I know uh, they are very famous worldwide because are the, probably the first islands in Cinco, at least in being promoted in that level. The IOM is working there uh, in a DRR project or community development project and also touching a bit the relocation. Some people of Carteret is moving to live in Timpur, which is in the west coast of Fugambil. Uh, I'm going to give my personal opinion. I'm not, I, I'm, I don't fancy the word relocation because people is seen as a victim and it's like uh, moving to a place where they don't belong. And that created in a, in a country like uh, Papua, where people is really attached to the land and to you know, their property, is uh, very difficult uh, at the local level to accept those people and also for those people to go and live in a place where they don't belong and things like that. Uh, I like to see it in a way like, uh, like in terms of work mobilization. You know? like I'm, I'm living in Buka and being relocated to Buka because I've got a work in Buka. So if people is looking at the relocation programs instead of... Uh, just like relocating and looking for a space, like a sort of work and mobility program, I think it would be uh, easier for them. At least that's some comments I've got from some chiefs in some villages in terms of relocation. Uh, but I, it's not my topic, I'm not really more on that, it's just like my personal view is, I think, a sensitive issue, but it's something that we, th we have to think about it. In the, in, 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 in the others where I work, uh, some people, before I came, I asked for them some ideas, and they were very happy to ask, to tell me, to ask to the Australian government, uh, some scheme of this, uh, there's a scheme or something like that, where young people come to Australia uh, in a seasonal basis to help to collect fruits. It seems that it makes a difference for them, because it's very difficult for them to go out of the atolls, it's very difficult to have uh, an income, and for the youth, it facilitates, like, gives an overview, it helps them to be outside, and it helps them to be relocated or to, to work. The strategy at the local level for them is to invest in education. So in the adults, because they know they cannot uh, keep the population they have, they try to send, if they've got money, their children to study in different areas. So by studying different areas, they will be able to look after or to find a, a livelihood later or to be easy to mobilize. Uh, the difficulties for those that doesn't have that opportunity. So that's how it uh, my view on this. So, but I'm not an expert, and really I'm not working that much on that. Uh, would you like to talk about sustainability? Or? Uh, sure. Um, so I guess I wanted to respond to the question on sustainability in the context of um, uh, Vietnam, because it also talks to that idea of um, uh, linking up to, to local governments. I mean, uh, my experience with that activity is, to, to go back to Jack's earlier question, the activities that we're doing in our project, I feel like because they're embedded in that um, that idea of improved understanding and then uh, action based on that improved understanding, uh, there's a real sense of ownership. And I think we heard that in some of the other projects too, that there's a, a real sense of ownership and empowerment from the communities who've been engaged in it. So I don't, I'm not actually terribly concerned about the sustainability of actions without us. But one of the great things that we saw in Vietnam was that we were working with the uh, local level government on their socioeconomic development plans and using this participatory uh, vulnerability and capacity assessment approach to help inform those uh, SEDPs and uh, help to get climate change actions into those plans and policies. And we um, we have a case study in this publication, um, uh, which is about someone from one of the local governments saying, 
you know, I never really thought of the idea of listening to the community when we design our community action plans, our five-year action plans before, because it's a very top-down country. Things come from the national level, they um, permeate down, and then the local level follows those <coughs> instructions. And so, the, you know, there's, there's a massive disjoint between what's happening in these more rural areas and um, uh, what, what the impact of people is on the ground, what the experience of people on the ground is. And so by helping to, to make those local level plans informed by people's actual experiences, I think that they are much more likely to be both relevant and sustainable into the future. And there's a couple of ordinances that I put up earlier. We're also seeing some... Uh, decisions being made at the local government level to put aside funding as a mandated thing year on year as a pool of funding to be used to respond to climate change impacts. So I feel like that issue of sustainability is quite well met. Um, just quickly on the question of scientific practice influencing adaptation actions, in, in Vietnam in particular, we worked with this uh, Center for CRD. It's, uh, I've forgotten what the acronym stands for. It's something like Rural Research. Um, but anyway, the Vietnamese in that part of Vietnam, they're sort of um, sort of like the CSIRO. They're the uh, nationally funded scientific body, and they helped to inform the selection of uh, livelihood models that were used. And then those that were sort of, if you imagine, an array of options was given to a community. They did their analysis of what impacts affected them, and then based on the options available, were able to say, well, given we feel vulnerable to X, Y, and Z, we choose to go with pig farming or goat farming or improved rice cultivation. And so that was heavily informed by scientific practice, but I'd be happy to talk more about that to you afterwards. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, I might just comment first on the, the, the innovation and scientific knowledge as it can, can come into play in these processes. And I think that... Um, I've got real hope for the future from this because we're seeing innovation around, say, resource use efficiency the way that we haven't seen it in a long time. It's largely driven by prices, so it's likely to be continuing. Um, I think what is a real problem is if a very poor rural communities getting access to that information in forms that they can actually apply. And one of the, the really good things about having these projects and similar ones is connecting communities with that sort of knowledge. What we've got to really focus on for the future is making that ongoing so that things like climate change centres and extension centres are properly, you know, accessing and translating that information. We need a whole series of knowledge brokers. So I'm less concerned about the knowledge and the science and more concerned about the brokering of that. Um, just a brief comment on the, the, the migration issue in, in the Pacific and I think that this is probably the biggest thing saying to us globally that um, adaptation investment isn't, isn't, isn't enough and it really has to um, ramp up much more on the ground so that um, there are other opportunities where possible to avoid, to avoid that. Um, sometimes physically it's not possible anymore perhaps but there are opportunities to, to try to invest our way out of that. Um, one of the biggest things is what I've seen all around this, this uh, program and everywhere else that I've worked in this field is that getting complementary investment and development at different scales is critical. If you get communities working on these smaller activities on the ground and they don't have the support of the private sector in terms of the markets, the supply chains, the things that are connecting those communities to, to, to the the biggest fear, 
it's it's difficult. Flood control, for instance, you can have communities operating on small-scale flood mitigation measures, which are which are wonderful, but they'll be completely swamped when there's um, a large flood that's not mitigated at that larger landscape scale, which is where climate change really plays out. And some of the the activities in water supply, for instance, you can get really good livelihood op- options, kitchen gardens, permanent gardens. Um, operating on the ground but without the water infrastructure that can be maintained and the roads to market, really fully capitalising on those resilience building activities is really difficult. It's a long-term development process. It's no easier than any other development process. But it's we, we're starting it off through programs like these and continuing it through programs like these. Yeah, I think in terms of the... Uh, the intervention of scientific knowledge, I think it is uh, it's, it's very important. And I think uh, in the program that we had, it's actually just started on um, just uh, based on the experience, based on the uh, reference that we actually you know, get it from different places or from the you know other scientists actually. For example, in terms of you know establishing uh, you know permanent garden or any vegetable gardens, uh, people just thinking of okay, we probably we need compost to build compost to retain water so that it, it can minimize you know the use of water from because water constraints is become higher. Probably another another uh, technique is use the use of mulch mulching or maybe in hole or in row tillage with organic matter. So this is some kind of a practice that it's not looking at, you know, sort of, uh, sort of uh, a deeply kind of research to see the impacts later on. So it's just based on an observation, based on the evidence that the people say that oh, we do because of compost, we got this sort of result. But I think it's it's requires sort of uh, a sort of uh, a deeply study on that one so that we can see, oh, of course, if we have the program in two years or three years, so this is sort of the change is actually happening every, uh, every year. So I think it is important to, to get sort of uh, intervention of the scientific knowledge. Well, I think we might bring proceedings uh, to a close. So uh, please join me in thanking our four speakers. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.